Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what worked really well, what worked not so well, and the things that led to better games. And we talk about it all. In this episode, we're going to discuss economies in your D&D game. This has been a quite lengthy series, but we are almost done. I believe we will get through both 4th and 5th edition this episode. What do you think, Brandis? Well, Sam, are we going to stay on topic tonight? Probably not. There we go. <laughs> that is, that I mean, is a correct answer. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't see what we learn how now. Yeah, I mean, it has no value. Uh, indeed. The economy of learning how to not digress is... There's no ROI. Uh, well, right. Like my word count is not going into recession, folks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I am Sam Dillon, and as one of your hosts, I will introduce Brenda Stoddard, my co-host, who is going to start the discussion this evening. Uh, thank you very much, Sam. Um, yeah. So last time we, we covered uh, mostly three point five. Um, there weren't a ton of changes in the game economy between 3.0 and 3.5. There are some additional developments, um, especially as you get into Eberron and its whole approach to artificers and such, but it's neither here nor there. In fourth, uh, the, the approach to the economy is doing a lot of the same stuff as you see in third edition, but um, it doesn't have like it, it's been it's been adjusted and shifted around, and some of the the conceptual values of things have changed in ways that that do wind up mattering. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, this is as much a conversation about magic items and how you are allowed to use them as it's a conversation about you know, cash on the nail, right? Mm-hmm. Because last time we talked about how in third edition, uh, your your gold piece income and the you know captured gear you sold from fights to get more cash uh, was a kind of uh, experience point bar for your magic items. Because mm-hmm. you were expecting to improve your magic items, uh, and that was a big part of the, the, the whole deal. Um, that's still true in fourth, and we we gave some nods to that in in our conversation last time. But um, the ways that magic items are created, and the ways that you can improve them, I guess more importantly, the ways you can't improve them in fourth do make a material difference. Uh, There are also some whole new vectors of improvement that just weren't on anyone's radar in third. That wasn't a thing at all. Um, And so I want to get into a whole bunch of those. Um, So I'm going to start with the fourth edition player's handbook to, to talk about some of the the economic stuff here. Um, Fourth edition is uh, one of the many things that makes fourth edition an unusual standout is that it actively regards 
magic items as player facing rather than DM facing content. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a chapter on magic items that you can and should expect to find in the player's handbook, in the player's handbook two, in the player's handbook three, and then implicitly uh, Adventurer's Vault and Adventurer's Vault two and the Morden Cannons Cannons book, right? Uh, Those are all implicitly player-facing, where in every other edition of D&D, magic items are treated as DM-facing content for the DM to decide what to do with. Um, And so that that proves to be significant, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, So... So our first big um, economy thing is what kinds of coins there are, because this is the first time we see a big shift in something as fundamental as what the denominations of currency are. Um, of course, I got to find it. Well, remember we saw small shifts. We right. saw small shifts in in the in the very early days of the game. Remember, there was a shift from. You know a, how how much a silver is worth compared to a gold or copper piece, and how much a copper is worth compared to a silver, as the additions went. But then it hit a sort of solidified amount right around one e, right, and that became the standard. Right, and and that standard is going to be restored when we get to fifth ed. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So. So on page 212 of the Player's Handbook, um, we have uh, five monetary units. And as previously, uh, copper and silver are here. And it's hard to point to why. Because especially in 4th edition, more energetically so in 4th edition than in any other edition of the game, um, Nothing's priced in silver, right? There's there's almost nothing you could even want to do that would be priced in silver. Um, and then, you know, the the exchange rates um, are, are are standard. Uh, you know, ten copper is one silver. Ten silver is mm-hmm. one gold. Um, oh, oh so- wait, one gold is is sorry, a hundred gold to make one platinum. That's unusual. Uh, but we're not done. Platinum isn't the the, the, the top of the denomination. the denominations. Mm-hmm. We have astral diamonds, and it's a uh, hundred platinum to one astral diamond, and that's that just sort of came out of left field to me when I <laughs> first opened this book. Um, but but as I played with it and and things went on. I mean, I didn't have any games reach epic tier, uh, not for lack of trying, but it didn't mm-hmm. didn't happen. Um, I I sort of did come to like the existence of astral diamonds. Um, I, I've always liked the the dead gods' bodies floating in the astral and getting mined mm-hmm. by right. Githyanki kind of deal. Like that mm-hmm. is that is just bizarre and awesome and I love Githyanki and here we are. Um, right. So, so it, Astral it, Diamonds, it, yeah. It, 
it, it, it gives a sort of origin, right? It, it, or, well, origin's not the right word, but it basically says uh, for the, it doesn't really describe, it just says, oh, people used copper, silver, gold, blah, blah, blah. But then it says astral diamonds in fantastic realms beyond the natural world. For example, the city of brass and the elemental chaos, the bright city in the astral sea and the city of sigil. Um, you have the astral diamond. Oh, it's that's, that's sigil, Sam, sigil. Sigil. It, sigil. Sigil. Anyway. Sigil. <laughs> I believe we had this conversation on Twitter when Mike Shea uh, accidentally pronounced Thera's Dune as Tharza Dune. I have I have no uh, opinion on I, the the the, uh, the chained god. I also I also say Kraken instead of Kraken. I have um, I have no opinion on the, on the chained god, but <laughs> the, the pronunciation of the the city at the center of the Outlands that is canonically not pronounced like the word. Whatever. So anyway. <laughs> I'm not dismissing your comment. I'm just saying I have pronounced it sigil since I was first exposed to the word. And so that is how I will pronounce it. I'm not going to make any attempt to change that. So anyway, <laughs> well, you I'll just call there it. Your wrongness and how, about, wrong. how about this? Uh, the city of doors. Sure. That'll work. Um, so I just want to point out that, yeah, that the, um, you know, you, you mentioned that nobody uses silver and copper and all that for anything. So why even have it? There's only one point in an adventurer's career where they do that. And that is, actually, there's two points. I take that back. The first one is right at the beginning, because some elements of the adventuring gear are listed with a silver piece or copper piece values. The second place that you would use it is if you are in a tavern and you are purchasing, you know, drinks or something that is in silver or copper. But you very quickly outgrow the need to even use that unless you are playing a tavern-based game. Uh, uh, and then it just everything else is 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 gold is in the right. gold and realm. And and it's true that even here in Fourth Ed, uh, some of the equipment items are listed in copper and silver, but there's not very many of them. No, I fully agree. I'm just pointing out that it's yeah, not yeah. as if they list it on the table and then never mention it again. They just have some you know obscure items that are, yeah. you know. Um, but I think that the uh, 100 to 1 platinum to gold uh, exchange rate and the 100 to 1 astral diamond exchange rate is signaling early on what um, uh, you know Paragon tier and Epic tier cash layout is going to look like. It's going to be real big. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the number is going to get real it's, big. It's so big that you can't carry enough gold pieces. That's why they had to or even platinum pieces. That's why right. they had to move to astral diamonds because yeah. astral diamonds weigh five hundred diamonds to one pound. So you suddenly can carry a lot of currency at very low weight, hmm. which is not true of coins. Hmm. Yep, that's a real small diamond, but that's pretty cool. No, I mean, oh, it's it's there on the table. I see it. I just hadn't. It's it's an astral diamond. That. <laughs> sure. I, I guess it's. I guess it's uh, weight is primarily conceptual anyway. Um, I think in sigil they don't care. 
Uh, <laughs> it's so funny you should mention that. Um, in, so wait, in, I just wait. I just have one thing to say. Uh, some of our fans want us to argue about things on this podcast because we named it Edition Wars, and here we're having an argument. <laughs> sure, so fans, this one's for you, <laughs> right? Um, so I was so so my friend Colin ran um, a fourth edition game that was set in Sigil, the city of doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, a primarily investigation based game. And one of the earliest mysteries that we were called upon to solve was uh, about National Diamond. Uh, so we're, we're playing like fourth or, fourth or fifth level characters um, at this point, and we are investigating the theft of a National Diamond because mm-hmm. like it doesn't even have to be big; it's a phenomenal amount of money, right. you know, for people living in I think the Clerk's Ward, maybe. Um, but that was a really interesting campaign where Colin spent a lot of time developing and exploring what could be done with skill challenges to kind of get some of the kinks out. Anyway. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's coinage. Uh, and then I think one of the other really big, economic things that comes from the player's handbook. There's there's a few more, but this is sort of a big one Um, is that you're expected to improve, not just the enchantment on an existing suit of armor, but potentially the physical suit of armor. You're supposed to go out and buy a better material. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so every grade of armor and, Armor is broken up into six grades here. Uh, cloth, leather, hide, chainmail, scale, and plate. Um, each of those has two upgrades listed in the player's handbook, and they, there's whole charts of other upgrades later on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you go from cloth armor to weave armor, and, and so on. And to a certain degree, this carries a... Uh, a monetary cost, but it all sort of gets tucked into the cost of the magic item. You know, it's a, a little, a little baffling um, to me. Like it, it, I don't know if they ever come out and explain it in a way that makes sense to me, though they do try. I just <laughs> find it sort of stymieing. Um, anyway, um, uh, I think that like those improved materials are an implicit part of the at least the in-character uh, economies of those uh, of the D&D worlds that we're using in 4th edition even if the uh, mechanical economy downplays their their real importance to a certain extent. Right. Um, I feel like um, the there are basically additional points of armor, and then there are later enhancements that are additional points of non-armor defenses. Right. I I think the idea was they wanted everything to feel like it had a customization option or an upgrade option. Right. I think that's pretty fair. 
and and so they and they wanted it to be fair. They didn't want to not give any for cloth armor and give a whole bunch for scale armor and a couple for plate. They wanted it to be consistent feeling in uh, the in the player's handbook. Right, and I definitely do think that uh, having an, even, an equal number of kinds of improvement for everything is good. Um, mm-hmm. One of the striking things about it is, and this is a big meta economy point that well, we're going to have to talk about anyway, but mm-hmm. um, how, to, how to say this? Um, <laughs> so, all right. you If you start with cloth armor, you could pay a feat to go up to leather armor, armor proficiency. Mm-hmm. This is not mostly a good idea. You can you can buy feats to move up this chart, but it, it it's always kind of a mugs game in fourth because um, even if you manage to improve your armor class, which is sort of a dubious proposition, um, the enchantments that are offered on each type of armor the ones you're going to want are going to be on your original weight of armor. They're not right. going to be on the heavier armor that you right. spent all this, spent a feat to get into. Right. Um, right. And if you're supposed to be in um, cloth, leather, or hide armor, then your the ability scores that your class relies on are going to make that work for you because you're going to either have good decks or good int or you'll have a feature that lets you apply a different stat to your armor class, such as the Avenger does. Um, likewise, if you are in uh, chainmail scale or plate armor, then you are never going to be expected to have uh, a good uh, dex or int. It also means you, you, even though you have proficiency in uh, cloth, leather, and hide armor because in a nod to, let's call it realism, you <laughs> always have proficiency in lighter armors in 4th edition. Right. You're never going to want to do that. It's always going to be a bad bet for you because of those same things, right? Both on the enchantment side and on the ability scores you can afford to make good side. Right. Um, well, and and the thing is that this chart, e- even though I just talked about how it's trying to make everything customizable or whatever, visually that's what it wa- that it, that's what I think they were going for. But when you start looking later on at the enchantments and the different magic items and all that stuff, it bec- it becomes clearer that oh, this is where the customization is for my character. It's not whether I am good enough to find Fey Weave armor that's cloth armor. It's the enchanted armor that I end up getting or creating. Right. And um, that's where that customization comes in, which is why, and so that sort of is a circular way for me to say, so they didn't even need this. Most of this feels like it should have just been flavor. Well, so so what's, what's literally going on in this chart is um, math correction through armor bonus. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. Um, sure. And, like... We've talked about the fact that there are fundamental problems in attack math in 4th edition. Well, mm-hmm. this is where they remember to fix it on the defense side. 
because they'd have the same problem you know, at about the same times if they hadn't done this. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the, the proof is when these bonuses show up, because they're showing up when you have a minimum enhanced bonus of plus four and plus six. That right. That approximately means 15th level and 25th level. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, I do want to you know, go ahead and talk about the whole deal of magic items, if, if you're okay with that. Yeah, I was just looking at the weapons table to see if there's anything of interest there, and I don't think... I mean, it, the, the weapons table itself is, is fairly straightforward. Uh, in in economic terms, like, right. it, it's pretty standard. The, the prices are are fairly pick a number out of a hat, but mm-hmm. within a certain range, there's right. there's nothing to really get into there. Um, but then you get to um, magic items, and like there's there's a chart on page two twenty three that in a certain way kind of tells you up front everything you need to understand about how magic items are going to get priced. Mm-hmm. Because and, then, and then there's a chart on 225 that tells you everything you need to know about enhancement bonuses on those said magic items. Yeah. Um, so so let's take a little digression here because sure. this is probably one of the most controversial things about 4th edition. And I know you kind of mentioned that earlier, but sitting here looking at this page, this created a lot of rage in sure. some players. Sure. Because this took things out of the hands of the dungeon master and explicitly says, uh, here is exactly how magic items work. Here's what their bonuses are. Here's how much gold they're worth. Here's how much you should be able to sell them for if you get something you don't like. Here's how to identify them. Here's the different categories. Here's exactly how much residuum you will get out of it if you disenchant it, which we'll talk about later. And here is what the enhancement bonus should be for any given item at a given level. And that used to be the sole purview of the Dungeon Master. Right. And this is the only edition that has an entire section in the player's handbook that just lays this out. What's this, page 223 to page... Uh, where's the end of the section? To page 254. So 30 pages, densely packed with magic items. Yep. Every other edition has the magic items sequestered away from the player so that they don't necessarily know what's going on. Yep. Um, but the the thing that's striking about uh, magic item prices uh, is that they are explicitly just the result of item level. Mm-hmm. They're not... Um, there, there's no concept of a naturalistic pricing right. um, where in in third we talked about how like the the price if the overall bonus value of both like AC bonuses and enchantment effect equivalent value or whatever if that added up to plus five then it was priced as a plus five item um, right. and, and likewise for Weapons, but twice as much. Well, mm-hmm. this is um, 
sort of stripping it down further to this item has an item level. It's scaled from 1 to 30, and the each item of a given level has a as a immediately knowable price. So mm-hmm. a, a first level item is worth a magic item is worth 360 gold. End of story. Uh, and so that scales up from 360 at first level to uh, 3,125,000 at 30th level. Uh, likewise, it tells you on this chart what you were going to be able to sell it for. Your attempts to negotiate are adorable, but wasted. <laughs> uh, and I kind of get why they did that, but I don't well, love it. Right? They, they did it. They did it because the economy and the math, the math balance they were going for are integrated in fourth edition. Because if you are going to have magic items that are worth some value, but you want to keep everything as tightly balanced as they were trying to keep fourth edition, then you have to have some sort of standardization. And this is it. I'm not saying that it's correct or that it doesn't fall apart at higher levels, but this was the attempt at it. Yep. Um, well, and the sale price is also just straight up linked to the disenchant value of residuum. Right. Exactly. And, and that just, it grates at me, man, that gets under my skin because it means that the disenchanting process, um, is just a skin, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's right. it's strictly cosmetic. Uh, mm-hmm. It's letting you turn the magic item into gold pieces that look like dust instead of gold pieces. Right. Like, so it means the the privilege of the ritual is that you have a merchant in your pocket, and I just need that to be more hidden for me to experience the game mm-hmm. as I want to experience it. Um, it just is the kind of thing that, um, like if this hadn't been player facing, it would have been a little bit more okay because I'm used to the DM seeing the wireframes, but mm-hmm. this is showing the players, the wireframes and that, that just still gets under my skin. Um, anyway, as you were saying, um, well, so here's, here's the other interesting thing. Well, maybe interesting is going a little bit too far, but when it talks about residuum, Mm -hmm. it says, uh, it says in some exotic locales, residuum is traded as currency measured by weight and carried in small metal vials. It's a convenient way to transport large sums of wealth. 10,000 gold pieces worth of residuum weighs as much as a single gold piece and takes up only slightly more space. So one pound of residuum is worth 500,000 gold pieces and fits in a belt pouch. So here's the thing about that. Why not put that on the currency table? Yeah, that's super why do you need Why do you need astral diamonds and residuum? Yeah. Like, why not? And I think that's part of they did this, but then it's disconnected from the currency. But then you're going to say it's like currency and you're going to expect people to use it like currency. Well, except that this is the residuum is you get expressed in gold piece value because it like you mostly don't 
carry it in a standard mm-hmm. unit of weight. Oh sure, right? yeah, and, and that's right. that's kind of their issue. Like the reason to have astral diamonds is so that it is because you don't say um, I have half a million gold pieces in astral diamonds. You say I have this many astral diamonds. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like not having to reconvert everything down to gold pieces is a mercy in, in a narrative sense um, in the same way that like when you're going through uh, spell components, uh, valuable spell components in third or fifth or whatever, and they're always expressed in, you know, a gem worth this much. Right. Uh, and, the game just needs you to never ever think about how fluid the worth of a gem or an art object can mm-hmm. be. Right. Right. Um, yep. Yeah. Go someplace where, where everything is made of rubies and that Ruby is not worth very much. Right. But if you go someplace where rubies are highly prized and very, very rare, that Ruby's worth more than it is in the modern day. So, right. and, and yeah. the, the spells just presuppose that value is absolute. And right. then forget that they can't trust adventure writers to stick to that. I don't right. know. Um, <laughs> well, but see this, but I mean, I, so this residuum has the same problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it does. So, right. And so, so, but the, I, I guess my only point is with something that is so tightly controlled that you're giving the players these tables and then you introduce the residuum the way that they did. It's, it's almost a stumble. Well, like, it would have been really interesting to me if uh, all rituals required residuum, no, not gold. There's no other components you can use mm-hmm. to to power a ritual. It has right. to be residuum, and so like rituals don't come online until the first time you are able to slag a magic item. Mm-hmm. That that's kind of interesting, yeah. Yeah. like. It, it it's a problem because the game wants you to have low level rituals, and right. I, I get that. And and disenchant doesn't doesn't come online until fifth, I think. Right, but here's also the other problem with this. Like, if you are interested in a game where divine magic is a different thing than arcane magic, then residuum being the result of disenchanting any magic item, regardless of what the nature of its magical forces were, then that obliterates your idea. If you, because I happen to in my homebrew worlds, there's always a difference between arcane magic and divine magic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not not just in the mechanics of oh well, you know, arcane casters have to have spell books, and you know, you know what I mean. No, I don't mean those differences. I mean the actual nature of the magic itself is different. So why would you have a magic item that's enchanted, quote unquote enchanted, filled with this particular type of magic versus this other particular type of magic? But if you get rid of both of those, they both give you the same output at the end, and yep. it's called residuum. That doesn't make any sense to my homebrew worlds. Yep. Um, I think that like, even something as comparatively minor as adding one more residuum parallel material, mm-hmm. but that comes from divine magic items, maybe there's another that comes from primal magic items, I don't know your life, um, that would start to introduce some some nuance and like I, I don't know arbitrage is mm-hmm. is maybe what you do right. with it 
but yeah. it, you know, there's the beginning of something you call a crafting system, and part of the the whole economy here is that it is a crafting system, but not much of one, um, because when you once you get the uh, enchanted magic item ritual, there's so little that the game provides you on the flavor front. Like it, mm-hmm. it just requires the player uh, players and the DM to do 100% of the work of giving that any flavor that for a lot of my experience, it was treated as vending machine. Right. Well, it's okay. I cast this ritual. Right. It was as, it was, it it was as interesting and flavorful as a vending machine. Like, that, that, that's like I found a lot to love in Fourth Edition. We are we are right now talking about one of the things that worked for me the least. So, right. well, uh, please don't take away I the think... impression, oh listeners, that I didn't like Fourth Edition. <laughs> While I was running it, I loved it, and I think it does a lot right. This isn't one of those things. Sure, I mean I think that's true of any edition, right? I mean, I, I I like certain editions more than I like other certain editions, sure. and there are various reasons for that, but I like all of them, right? Like, I like all of them. I love D&D, okay? Sure. I like all of them, but there are some I like more than others, and even the ones I really like, even my favorite, has issues, because yeah. that's just, you know, that's just what it is. But I, to get back to this and not digress too much, I feel like... Yeah, it's a vending machine. You're right. And and that's part of the reason why this is one of the most controversial sections in the game. Because not only did they just hand the book over and put every possible, at the time, magic item into it and let the players see every single thing about it. You know, they're peeking behind the curtain, right? Like it's yep. the it's Wizard of Oz. Here's the curtain. Oh, but instead of being a curtain that you're not supposed to get access to, here it is. It's your walk-in closet. Come on in and have a, have a pick. You know, pick right. whatever you want to have out of there. Right. And and then at the same time, we're also going to make the crafting system and the idea of something called residuum so shallow yep. that the customization that you could get is lost. So instead, it becomes a Sears catalog that you pick from. And if um, your DM doesn't doesn't really want to give you the one that you want, you just have to gather enough items that eventually you disenchant them all and build the one that you do want. You know, whereas that that's very antithetical to D and D to a lot of people because a lot of games, a, I would say, a large portion of games are fetch quests to get the magic sword, the magic armor, the magic whatever, kill the whatever to get this great item they have because that's the one everybody wants. Mm-hmm. And if you already know everything that exists, because here it is right in the player's handbook, that's that's the nature of that right. dissatisfaction with this like, se- with this section of the book. Right. And like the, the, the absence of mystery and the just the, the sense of uh, well I have this idea for a build that needs this one magic item. Like mm-hmm. Right. So, so look, I know of games, uh, other tabletop games, where this is the, the default assumption, right? So you go over to the One Ring, and um, 
their equivalent of magic items are literally just power-ups that you choose when you get to choose mm-hmm. power-ups. Right. Like, it, that's that's a kind of advancement that you just pick as part of advancing. It, uh, you get your item, cool, go. Um, but the concept of it being treasure is fundamentally lost to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it It is just like a new class ability at that point. Um, right. it, it, this item is intrinsic to me. It, obviously, it can't be taken away because, you know, now you're taking away my experience points. Mm-hmm. No, friend, no. Um, right. Like magic items, like I don't want to see GMs who take them away all the time, but magic items being able to go away, well. It's certainly intrinsic to uh, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. Just just as an example. Um, I mean, things would have been pretty different for my boy Isildur if uh, Anduril Flame of the West had maybe not been shattered under the boot of Sauron. I'm just going to throw right. that out there. Mm-hmm. And there was, this, there was this one dude who really wanted to get rid of a ring. Like, as <laughs> uh, the, the, the farthest yeah. anyone has ever gone to get rid of a class feature. Right. You know? And I'm not really even meaning to go after the One Ring. It's a wonderful game. I, I love what it does. But I don't understand that approach because it can't do the thing that I love about receiving treasure. The emotional reward loop of receiving treasure is broken for me if you do that. And 4th edition is putting that emotional reward loop at risk. It isn't necessarily breaking it, because the DM can still give you something other than what you expected. And maybe you figure out how to make it work. Uh, but Or maybe you're disappointed. Or maybe you're disappointed. And right. feeling disappointed with treasure is really dangerous for the emotional reward loop of D&D. Uh, I've talked about that a lot, but yeah. it, it really comes up here, right? And and not only that, but let me, let me give you an, a specific example. On page 231, there's something called Tomb Forged Armor, okay? It's a level 14 plus magic item, magic set of armor. And at the top of it, it has a flavor text. It says, this armor is constructed around a single link from the burial armor of a hero dead at least 100 years. Okay, you know what that is? That sentence right there? That's a hook for an adventure. Could be. But since this is in the player's handbook and is right there for the players to see, they lose that ability to have that as some fascinating hook or some piece of lore in the world. And now the DM has to do some work to change this enough that it's not recognizable if the player happens to flip to that page and read it. Right. But yet still meaningful within the terms of the game. Right. Or or the DM has to take, you know, the the idea of a wish list that the players give the DM for whatever armor and weapons and other magic items they want. You know, the players give the DM a wish list and then the DM, uh, you know, awards those throughout the campaign. If there's something really cool on one of those wish lists, now the DM 
does the work of putting that thing into the campaign to make it part of the quest or make it part of a treasure package or right. treasure parcel or something, right? But but maybe that's not maybe that's not maybe that's not the DM's conception of what of the world that they were in. You know what I'm saying? Like it feels like uh, you now have to kludge some of these magic items that the players want into the setting. And every one of these magic items has like some kind of little flavor text up at the top that like they could have turned that section into just a list of hooks to get your players interested in, in trying to get this item. They could have put that in the, the DMG, right? Sure. Like yeah. if your players put this item on, you know, if here, here's the, the list of, of magic items that your players know about because they're in the PHB. If your players put those on their wish list, here's how you could make that part of your story. Like that would have been a book I would have bought. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so I feel like not only does it take out, it, t- it takes out that mystery part, but it also takes out some of the, some of the DM fiat that's inherent in figuring out what the players find when they defeat a foe. Um, so did we talk about the, the way that, um, all magic items have a new version of themselves five levels higher. Do we get into that? No, we have not mentioned it. I've been fastidiously avoiding it. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to put my thumb in it then. So, yeah, so, so that's, that's a thing, right? So as a way to restore some, uh, emotional hook in this item, uh, you don't necessarily just like, outgrow an item at a certain level, right? Um, so, to use your example of Tomb Forged Armor, like you said, um, its lowest level version is 14th level. There are items that start at 1st level, there are items that start at 26th level, or 29th level, or whatever, but if there's 5 more levels to go up, then there's a high level version in 5 levels. That is better in some way. So with Tomb Forged Armor, uh, the 14th level version has a plus 3 uh, enhancement bonus to armor. Uh, the 19th level version is plus 4, 24th level is plus 5, 20th level is plus 6. And they, they you know, repeat the whole um, magic item cost structure you know, mm-hmm. result from that chart that I mentioned. Right. Uh, and then Tomb Forged Armor is an enchantment that only works on chain, which follows from the flavor text. Um, and then uh, it grants uh, resist 10 necrotic. So the first 10 points of necrotic damage from each attack that, that come in, you shave off, you, you just knock off 10. Great. In the 24th and 20th, 29th level versions, that's resist 15. Great. Because, yeah, damage values go up. You don't want that 10 to stop mattering because you're now in epic right. tier, so so 15, right. sure. Um, and then also as a daily power uh, that has the healing keyword. So as an immediate interrupt, which we now call a reaction, uh, you can use this power when an ally within five squares of you takes damage. You spend a healing surge but regain no hit points. Instead, the ally regains hit points as if he or she had spent a healing surge. Okay, so this is on chain armor, and that's done with intent, right? Mm-hmm. And the intent is this is for clerics, right? 
Um, and maybe also warlords. I think warlords. Pro- probably any leader. Uh, well, not not any leader because bards eventually. Um, mm, yeah, and, like that's that's one of the the weird things about all that that stat stuff I mentioned, right? Uh, later classes don't necessarily have the same itemization goals, and right, yeah, warlords and uh, warlords are also you know mm-hmm. going after chainmail. So so right, like this is an incredible item if you're a leader. It's another way to use a ranged heal, and that's a super big deal. In fourth edition, uh, like that's that's your expected combat functionality. Mm-hmm. In theory, a fighter could be wearing this armor and use this, but he mostly needs his healing surges for himself, right? Because his job and, is to get hit in the face for a living, right? And also, the you know this this is where the other way that links pun intended. This oh. is also chainmail because any fighter worth their salt is not wearing chain; they're going to be wearing plate. Uh, uh, no, they specifically wear scale. Okay, so, well, that's what I said, or something else, right? right. So, so, so plate is, is reserved to paladins. That's one of the other weird things. Uh, fighters don't get proficiency in plate. Paladins are the only class that gain plate proficiency. Okay, so but here's so here's where I was going with this. If you look sure. right below Tomb Forge, Tomb Forge armor, mm-hmm. right? It's available for hide or scale. It also has a healing daily power. Yep. Okay. But that healing daily power lets the wearer gain regeneration. You don't mm-hmm. pass the healing off to someone else. You get the healing. Yep. That troll skin armor is only it's, for hide or scale. It's, right. So it's so skipping. Fighters, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the thing, right? So, so, the reason I'm pointing that out is because it's actually really well designed. I mean, they're telling you it's te- it's supposed to be telegraphing for you who it's really intended for without having to say class restriction. This is only for whatever, right? Right. Because they also knew that later on there would be more classes added, and they didn't want to have to go back and retcon all. You know, despite all of the errata they did end up issuing, <laughs> right. they were trying to not do that by using these specific keywords and types. Right. But they're also going to run into places where that doesn't suit their narrative for the class anymore. Exactly. That's absolutely right. So uh, it's Putting not Avengers system. in cloth armor is still a weird move to me, but what can you do? Uh, just because I mean, they, I, they so want yeah. to be in leather with rogues, they are mm-hmm. rogues in all but yeah. name. So, right. like, I love Avengers. Uh, they're one of my favorite classes to come out of fourth mm-hmm. along with sure. warlords. And, uh, and I would wager that uh, part of the impetus for the advantage disadvantage mechanic is Avengers. Everybody loves rolling 2d. Oh 20. yeah. Th- that's, that's not even a question for, for yeah. sure. It is. Um, so, so, but yeah, but they can only wear cloth. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, but I think that choice was so that they didn't have an enormously high AC. Uh, except they wound up giving them a feature to improve their AC. Right. Well, because, it lets them apply well, their yeah, wisdom bonus yes. to AC a bit. Like, right. So, so they they fix the AC and then refix it. Come on now. Well, no. So the thing is, like, but they give them the bonus to because they wanted them to have their wisdom AC, uh, wisdom bonus. So if you give them really high armor in the first place, then that wisdom bonus feature is what 
propels them beyond their right. balance numbers for them right. to see. That's why they had to do that. It's just most of the cloth armor that existed at that point would do the Avenger no good because sure. they're a weapon using class and not, you know, dress wearing casters. Right. Anyway, it's we don't need to relitigate this. It's fine. No, no, no. I know. I, I'm just, but the, my point here with this is what they were trying to do didn't necessarily come through because putting the magic items in the player's handbook really was a sore spot for a lot of people. And there are a lot, there are problems with it, and we have discussed some of them. Some of the good things, though, is that they were trying to make it so that some of these things were keyed in a way that it was really obvious what makes sense for each particular character, which one they would choose or which one would that way when the DM, if the DM is not asking for wish lists, they can go to this book and say, okay, this would be really good for this player because it has these, it has this type, it has this power, it has whatever and make that try to make it easy. And I don't know how successful they were at it, but I see the attempt and I appreciate it because it's an amazing piece of design, even if not all the way successful. Yep. Um, so, so right. <laughs> there was one one more thing I wanted to say about magic items sure. that, that affects the economy. Um, they wanted to get rid of what they call the Christmas tree effect uh, mm-hmm. from third edition. Right. The Christmas tree effect or or, or situation in three uh, O and three five is that you have all these different item slots and all these different types of bonuses. Um, you know, a, a dodge bonus, an enhancement bonus, mm-hmm. um, and so on. Um, a luck bonus. And a big part of the system mastery of three five is filling every item slot. And then coordinating all the bonuses so that they stack instead of conflict. Right. So you don't have two different natural armor bonuses um, to to AC, right? You have to be really careful about that mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Right. So you want to fill all these uh, different item slots um, and then level up those items as best you can if they're leveled items, which a lot of them are. Uh, they're going to be you know, either plus two, plus four, plus six, or uh, plus one through plus five, whatever, really. Um, that's a, a big driver of play because all those different items are their own sort of gold piece progression tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they wanted to get rid of that because they felt like it uh, was really muting the value of your your character's abilities, right? Um, mm-hmm. You were your magic items, maybe more than you were the stuff in your class progression. Um, and for fighters, considering how little there is in the class other than you get feats, that's probably a fair cop. Um, <laughs> so in fourth, uh, you have your your weapon slot, your uh armor slot, and then um, I think it's either a shield or a cloak, isn't it? 
so oh, arm slot, right? Shields and bracers. That's that's right. Oh right, so, that's what. So it is, yeah, I was uh, like, wait, no, a cloak. You can wear a cloak. Yeah, yeah that, that would make <laughs> sense. But but yeah, yeah. arms, uh, right? Yes. You either have a shield or you have bracers. Right. Uh, you can have both. Right. And then feet, hands, uh, head, neck, and then necks are either cloaks or amulets, right? Um, and rings and waste and wondrous items. So that sounds like a long list, but mm -hmm. in comparison, it's not. Uh, because there's a lot of item slots in in third. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> on the other hand, all of these are leveled items uh, with just a tiny number of exceptions. Um, there, are, there are so very few magic items that aren't... Um, Aren't leveled, so hand slot items are uh, mostly not leveled, but there are some that some few that are. Feet slot items are mostly not leveled, but I'm sure in later books there are some that are. But like for the most part, you're you're getting back on that uh, XP progression, uh, the gold piece progression treadmill for all these items, and that's right. just that's your life now. Um, or you're waiting for something better to come along and you're only using this item because your GM handed you something that you don't care about. <laughs> right. Uh, but you have nothing else for that slot, so you're going to use it right now. Right. Um, and then the last piece of the economy in in 4th edition is rituals. Um, if you're only familiar with rituals from 5th, well, the thing about rituals in 4th is that they cost money. Um mm -hmm. They always have a component cost. It might be as little as 10 gold pieces or whatever, or it could be a phenomenal amount of money, but they always cost money. And they, uh, like, they're kind of like um, a, a grab bag of class features that you only get if you are a ritual caster, either for having bought the feat that makes you a ritual caster or ha having it from a class feature. But um, you might be able to use the same rituals as someone else. And honestly, given how class features work in fourth, actually sharing something like that is unusual. In in terms of real class features, like rangers and rogues are completely dissimilar in every way. They have nothing in common. Mm -hmm. um, which it seems a little strange if you're used to rogues and rangers from other editions of, of D and D, but it's true here. They're, they're both martial strikers and that's all they have in common. Um, anyway, um, there's, there's all these rituals. Some of the money you get from all of your adventuring is going to go to funding rituals that you know, clear problems out of your way or give you some other kind of advantage. Um, for the most part, these aren't going to have direct combat uh, implications, but they're going to help you in social situations or exploration situations or investigation situations, um, or they're going to help you recover from combat after the fact. So you have cure disease, you have you have your raised dead, you have that whole set of things, um, and. Um, then you have enchant magic item like we've been talking about, and that's that. That starts at fourth level, 
So that means you have to be at least character level four to to cast it. And it opens up the whole world of converting gold pieces into magic items. <laughs> uh, then disenchant starts at sixth. Um, and it, well, does the obvious. It, it creates residuum for you in a gold piece value that is 20% of the value of the magic item, uh, which is going to be the same as the sale price. It's just that you sold it for uh, a, f- a fine powder rather than mm-hmm. uh, gold coins. Right. And presumably, if you are uh, the mother of Jack and the Beanstalk, you're now very disappointed. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, and so that that's kind of the beating heart of um, fourth edition's economy. Um, and it, it it seems sort of weird to say it, but like the the, the elements of the economy that show up in the DMG are pretty limited. Um, it's really just kind of here's how much treasure to hand out. Here's what we're talking about with treasure parcels. Your, your party will get about 10 treasure parcels per level, and they should be about this big at each given level. Mm-hmm. Um, it's offering guidance on when to hand out magic items and how good they should be. Right? Um, yep. And if, if like me, you've been playing since second, or if, like Sam, you've been playing since 15 minutes before the game released. Um, <laughs> Are you trying uh, to say I'm old? Uh, yes, that's yes, that's <laughs> accurate. Um, so old. Um, <laughs> so old, I, I, know, I know Sigil's true name. <laughs> but not how to pronounce it. <laughs> Uh, look, I get that you were there when the Lady of Pain kicked Eoskar out. That's really cool. Like that's yeah. awesome for you. But you should have paid attention in class. Um. So so right. The, like for, for for us old timers, there's a feeling that it is taking away some of the GM's art. I think mm-hmm. some of that that sense of um of weirdness and wonder. Certainly uh, we've talked about sort of uh, Gygax's sense of gotcha magic items. Like boy, did he ever love a cursed magic item and right. uh, fourth edition just doesn't really have time for that. Um, well later, but oh, when you get into um, some of the items with concordance, your, your artifacts and such, those you could reasonably call cursed, but for the most part, we're not going to engage with the idea of cursed items in, in, in fourth until then. Right. Uh, yeah. I think there was a dragon magazine article. Wasn't there? Chris Sims talked about cursed magic items, but yeah, I mean, I mean, what you're saying is correct, right? The, the it's, it's a different sort of, uh, you know, it's just it's different from the as you said the gotcha kind of cursed items you know um 
that existed in previous editions in a way that was sort of you could foist them upon the the PCs um, because any it, also the thing is part of the reason why those went away in fourth edition if we're actually talking about reasons why if all the players know there's this huge list of magic items and they're putting in their own wish list they are not likely to find a magic item in a treasure parcel and not try to identify it before they use it and accidentally get stuck with it you know what i right. mean right right that, that whole so, that whole approach to yeah. things is just sort of sort of gone from the the process uh, yeah. like reading this out loud will not help it be clear but you have to understand that there are uh, there are four pages in the DMG, uh, page 120, 126 through 129, where um, at each level it spells out what the 10 parcels should be, more or less. That mm-hmm. That's specified down to the level of uh, one fifth level magic item, one fourth level magic item, one third level magic item, one second level magic item, and so on. And those are each separate right. parcels at first level. Um, and then you know, it gets into the money and how the money breaks down, gems, art items, that kind of thing. Um, and, um, it, it, you know, they're trying to only show this amount of wireframe to the DM, but um, it it does give a very paint-by-numbers feel to, uh, to everything, in my view. Yeah. Yeah. So uh just as a follow up to the last conversation, there are actually there's a cursed item section in Mordenkainen's Magnificent mm-hmm. Um it says cursed magic items were a mainstay of older editions of the D&D game, much to the Dr- dungeon master's delight and player's occasional frustration. Blah 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 blah. It talks about it. Um Cursed items cannot be detected by any means. A character can use a cursed item normally, sometimes for weeks, until its curse is triggered. That's the way to get them to accidentally use a cursed item, is you make it look like, you describe it as if it is the thing that that they wanted, right? And then suddenly something triggers, right? Um, and, And then it gives some examples of curses that you can place on on different items. For example, there's an armor of powerlessness curse. The trigger is the wearer misses with a daily attack power that has a power source other than martial. (laughs) And then the effect is until the end of the encounter, the wearer cannot use daily attack powers that have a power source other than martial. In addition, when the wearer misses with an at-will attack power that has a power source other than martial, he or she loses the ability to use that power again until the end of the encounter. So it's basically... Um, a utility wow, that is power. A, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, that's it's horrible. An, it's, it's a utility power that's an encounter power that actually penalizes the PC, and yeah. it has a trigger that can be triggered whenever, in any given encounter, that trigger. So here's another one: bracers of defenselessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, an encounter utility power: the wearer takes damage from a single attack greater than five plus his or her level. That's the trigger. 
the effect is until the end of the encounter, the wearer takes a negative two penalty to all defenses and grants combat advantage, which means everybody gets a plus two to hit them. So these are not the, the typical, you know, curses. These are not the typical cursed items that, you know, that from, from the, from the days of yore, right. Right. Um, you know, there's one called the Stone of Weight. You put it on an item uh, for the next slot. When the wearer makes an attack that hits, suddenly the wearer's speed is halved until the end of the encounter. You know, so... Eh. Well, <laughs> that that is sort of traditional. The triggered effect, no. The uh, That specific item, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just, I think that was sort of, a, there's only like three or four pages there. And I think that was, um, you know, that was the attempt at, we're giving the DMs an option that they missed that has not been in the game previously. And so here it is. Other, you know, and that, that is preceded, by the way, by the whole artifact issue with the concordance and all that stuff, which is a different way to, to utilize items, uh, exerting power on the PCs that wield them. So, um, is there anything else about fourth edition <laughs> that you want to no, talk about? No, I, I think we're, I think we're running good. pretty long. Uh, um, well, yeah. we did warn one another. Yes, I know. I can't help but digress. So, and I, and you know, there's probably a whole lot we're missing in fourth edition in terms of different source books that introduced new ways to deal with that type of, curse or whatever uh and we are with knowledge skipping all of that stuff because really this episode is not really about specifically how here's how magic items were used in fourth edition it's more about the economy that is forced onto the the pcs and the dm because the way the system was built so so i'm ready to move on to fifth if you are uh yep 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 i was just uh reviewing the dmg2 there's a section on uh Seagull, the city of doors i want to see if it had a pronunciation guide i looked already <laughs> i was just looking at that a minute ago and i all did right. not see one <laughs> all right so so in fifth edition um <laughs> so did you see it did you see where i i couldn't find a place where it said the actual pronunciation uh no i i think that uh we have to go back to um, probably the the second ed box sets to yeah. uh, find something reliable on that. So you know so the outer uh, what was it the the planeswalkers guide to the outer planes or something came with a CD and it told stories about the different things in it. Well, I'm, I'm just going to point out there's something much more important as a source for Planescape that came with a CD. <laughs> It's Planescape Torment. Torment, yes, I know. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it's the best thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Enhanced Edition, guys, it's amazing. It's so yeah. good. The UI is so much better. <laughs> um, anyway, so now let's go. <laughs> so, so fifth edition. Fifth edition. <laughs> um, so um, one of the reasons I wanted to even talk about you know, game economies uh, across the editions is 5th edition, right? Because uh, it's something that sees a lot of discussion online. Um, you know, what do you do with your gold pieces in 5th ed? Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Um, in one way, that's that's a pretty good question because fifth edition does away with um, you know easy and direct um, magic item enchanting to improve your gear, right? Like right. There's really not much of a sense at all that. Uh, well, I have a um, maybe I have a, a flame brand sword, right? That's right. that's a phenomenal magic sword, but I can't go to an enchanter and pay him a pile of gold and have it now be uh, plus one better. Right. That's not a thing, and that's super weird. It's super weird in D and D. Now, yeah, but... it's nominally it's nominally true in second ed and earlier editions, but. Man, it broke my brain when I I saw that, and just oh, this doesn't ha- have an improvement option. Like mm-hmm. in theory, all flame brand swords are this. Huh? How about that? Um, and this isn't this isn't disapproval. It just came as a huge shock to me, um, and you know. You, there are just plus one sword, plus two sword, plus three sword magic items, right? That that's a thing, mm-hmm. but it has no other feature than its base plus, and right. same for for armor and shield, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that that content has moved back to the DMG, just to be clear, mm-hmm. right. um, and um, w- so within the player's handbook, um, there's very little that that gets into um, the economy in any meaningful way. Uh, you've got your equipment tables. That's great. Uh, you've got your you know starting wealth, uh, mm-hmm. and we're back to the what I would call classic um, denominations Coinage. of D and D. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know. A ten to one system at each step of the way up. Aside from Electrum, you have Electrum back. It's it's your five silver. Good, great, fine. Um, Electrum has shown up mainly in my campaign as a you know, plot widget. Um, mm-hmm. Right. As I made the PCs alloy a phenomenal amount of gold and silver <laughs> to carry out a ritual. I was a jerk. Right. Um, <laughs> All this gold that you have needs to go away in this ritual. I hate you. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, so, right. You've got your like. We go back to a lifestyle expenses table, which right. is a price per day, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's going to get uh, repeated over in the DMG, but as a per week, maybe. Or per month. Um, anyway, per day is uh, you know, wretched for free, squalid for one silver, poor for two silver, modest right. for one gold, comfortable for two gold, wealthy for four gold, aristocratic for ten gold pieces minimum. But per day, right? Uh, yeah, I you mean, you could obviously go up from there. Yeah. Um, and and that's interesting to me mostly because. Um, I 
I find that in listening to uh, Matt Mercer and other actual play GMs, when the PCs are spending money at a tavern or whatever, mm-hmm. like that 10 gold piece minimum gets passed real fast. Um, right. Right. There's like, there's a sense of inflation in the GM's mind as well as in the player's minds. Um, and so something that the equipment tables might price at a few coppers, um, the GM thinks about how much money the players have and <laughs> knows that one gold is still go- is still nothing to them. So they just round right. up from three copper to a gold mm-hmm. or right. three gold or whatever. <laughs> the players pay it without thinking twice, even though right. it's, you know, a 1000% markup or whatever. Yep. 10, 10,000% markup. Anyway, yeah. not important right now. <laughs> uh, but I mean, that's, yeah, I, I, I think part of the, part of the issue with that is there is no real, um, there is no real idea of, you know, how the economy affects the world around the PCs. Right. You know, sure. it's like it's like that idea of well, if they go into a tomb and they pull out twenty thousand gold pieces worth of treasure and they take it to the little village that they've been, you know, adventuring out of for a couple of months, they're going to destroy the economy of that village. Sure. Not not as in oh, they took all the money out, they stole everybody's money. That's not what I you know what I mean is if they pump that twenty thousand gold pieces worth of items into that economy, it's going to change the way that that town works. It it is, and and so so to 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 avoid that, then you just inflate it in your mind. Well, now that you're here, everybody knows you have money. Uh, a, a pint of ale costs you a gold piece now. Right, and you know if you want to run everything as sort of a boomtown, that's fine. Uh, mm-hmm. But th- that sort of remains up to the DM, and I think that trying really hard to Right mechanics around that is probably going to be a mistake. Sure. Uh, Unless your game is focused a lot on the economic realities of being a treasure hunter and finding treasure quite frequently, as happens in D&D, right. not the same as in real life, <laughs> um, then, you know. I mean, has have you ever have you ever seen the Curse of Oak Island? I mean, how much money have these guys pumped into you know <laughs> yeah. to trying uh, to get the gold out of there when it's not you know there might not be anything there, and you know they've spent millions of dollars. So you know that's that's not what our characters are doing. Our characters are walking out a few miles from town and risking their lives and bringing back possibly hundreds to thousands of gold pieces worth of stuff. Right. Well, and the Curse of Oak Island is sort of the perfect real world example of what I was talking about back in first ed with the purpose of money is to make it possible to go get more money. Right. Exactly. Um, like curse of Oak Island is the bad outcome where you throw money at trying to solve this adventure Mm -hmm. generation over generation. And it just doesn't work. Right. And you never, it never ends up. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so the other, the other things that really engage the economy at all are downtime activities, um, crafting. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are rules for magical crafting. It's just that they take so long in in-game calendar time that right. your character is going to 
like, like whatever was going on that you were trying to solve with that magic item is going to be solved some other way. <laughs> it's not really super usable. Um, then practicing a profession, um, and this is interesting because it doesn't pay you money; it pays your your lifestyle expenses. Yeah, right. So right. it it's interesting that it doesn't change the gold pieces on your on your character sheet by default, and also fascinating that uh, if you have proficiency in the performance skill and put your performance skill to use during your downtime, you earn enough to support a wealthy lifestyle in- instead. I can think of yeah. so many musicians who would like to work. <laughs> right. They would like a work. Uh, yes. <laughs> and then... Uh, and right behind them are all my artist friends and then all my writer friends. And, uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. speaking as one of your writer friends, I should have bought performance. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that shit's on me. I should have well, I should have made a different decision. Um, so then you also have recuperating and researching and training. Re- researching and training are both interesting because they are uh, cost sinks. Um, mm-hmm. uh, for each day of research, you must spend one gold pieces to cover your expenses in addition to your normal lifestyle expenses, which researching doesn't um, doesn't implicitly cover. So uh, you need a research grant, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Like, I like that they made answering questions. Um, even even if it's not terribly costly, it still costs money. That, that's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Uh, right. And then uh, training is actually adding more proficiencies to your character sheet, so that definitely costs costs money, and I think that's cool. Um, then over in um, Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Um, yeah, that's what I was looking at right now. This whole section, I, I actually don't have that in front of me. This whole section gets revamped with uh, new actions and more actions and more ways to uh, throw money at the story. It's right, not even so, necessarily yeah. to solve your problems. It's just you, you're kind of turning money into new content in a way. Right. And that's pretty cool. So what it does is it sort of it talks about downtime activities and it talks about how to resolve those activities, how 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 long it might take for those, and then any complications that the the PC might have in resolving those. And it goes through some specific examples, buying a magic item, and it has these tables uh, for you to figure out how much it's going to cost. Um, so it's not related to just the level of the item that they're looking for, like it would have been in fourth edition. Um, it has an example of carousing as a downtime activity, um, and then some complications. And it depends on whether you're in a lower, middle, or upper class area. It has crafting an item, so there's your crafting additional rules, although they're still pretty thin. Um, right. Then it has crime. <laughs> Right, gambling, pit fighting, relaxing, religious service that is performing a religious service, uh, doing research. Here's your research again. Yep. Although that section is much shorter because they have a lot more of it uh, in the in the DMG. Um, and then scribing a spell scroll and training. Yep. And you know, so it's so. Here's the thing about training. So training says uh, you need resources. Receiving training in a language or tool typically takes at least ten work weeks. 
but that's reduced by the number of work weeks equal to the character's intelligence modifier. Training costs 25 gold per work week, so that's not too expensive. That's, that's the same price as in the player's handbook, except that now it can be mitigated by your intelligence modifier. Right. And complications arise while training uh, while training typically involve the teacher. Every 10 work weeks spent in training brings a 10% chance of complication. And then you have these complication tables, then you, you know, and then there's work. If you're just working and then it tells you how much wages you'll earn, depending on, you know, what your what your actual lifestyle is. So, I mean, these items are only, you know, one column on a page. It's it's not like it goes into such extravagant detail that it makes for an extremely detailed system. Right. But what it does, I think, is it provides the DM with, and it calls them example activities, right? It provides the DM maybe with a framework for how to try to adjudicate or expand these if they so choose. Mm-hmm. But none of them yeah. really. I mean, unless your game is is including the players wanting to open a business in town, I'm not sure that it needs more than what it has right now. Uh, right, and the the Dungeon Master's Guide does have rules for running a business um, mm-hmm. on page 129, uh, and there's a bunch of additional uh, acti- downtime activities here. Building a stronghold. Uh, mm-hmm. is really the big like cash sink, right. building a stronghold. Sure. Um, there's another carousing option here that Xanathar's is revising. Right, but but even there, the building a stronghold is not even an entire column, right? Right. It's just a few paragraphs and then a table with roughly how much the construction cost and time will be. Right. So, you know. And uh, there's, there's running a business and selling magic items and sowing rumors and so on here. And that's all that's all fine. Um, but given all of this, to my mind, uh, the best explanation for what do you do with all of this money in 5th uh, edition, it, there, are, there are basically three answers. Right, mm-hmm. and you get to decide for yourself, you know, how you I- engage with these. And the first is you pay your upkeep, and you actually like encourage the DM uh, to pay attention to that each each day or each week or each month. Um, mm-hmm. My campaign uses upkeep as a as both a carrot and a stick to sustain some money pressure on the campaign. Um, so, so secondly, um, you you have all those downtime activities. The ones in Xanathar's, a lot of them cost money, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, researching and carousing are two of the are two very good ways to spend a bunch of your money and get some kind of narrative payoff for it. And that's the key. You need to care about the narrative payoff. Mm-hmm. You are turning money into narrative payoff. Right. That that is. New content comes along, or you you resolve old content. You get a lead on new content. Whatever you need to care about that, um, and uh, then you can certainly build a stronghold. Like that's great. It's not going to automatically get you a uh, retinue of warriors as it did in uh, first and second, but uh, having a stronghold is cool, guys. You know, 
There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Um, you know, uh, Matt Colville certainly has his, his book that uh, tells you how to spend colossal amounts of money on uh, buying a stronghold. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all to the good. Um, but um, And he's got a new one in the works, right? For uh, yep, yep. Uh, how, how to uh, uh, commit warfare with, <laughs> with right, your yep. stronghold. Yep, Kingdoms of Warfare is coming along. Yep. Uh, the probably the best explanation uh, is one that uh, I, Dyson Logos has written about, which is figure out a character goal, something that your character cares about that probably isn't something you can just go easily stab. Mm-hmm. Uh, then figure out how you're going to throw money at that for 20 levels. Okay, go. Right. Um, Wasn't there, I think, and Mike Shea talked about this, uh, either, I think it was Storm King's Thunder has a place where there's a a floating castle or a flying castle or something that, or was it Tyranny of Dragons? I can't remember. Tyranny of Dragons definitely has uh, a floating castle. So I think in that game, I think his group uh, ended up maintaining that castle and flying it around or, or whatever they needed to do. But that's, that was a big money sink for them was maintaining the integrity of that particular, you know, stronghold that they had, that they basically inherited because of whatever the situation was in the game. I don't really remember the details. It was a few years ago. Um, but that's, that's one way, right. Is to, to make something in the game. If the players latch onto it and decide they want to deal with it, then you make that a money sink. Right. For any, DMs out there who are uh, Stephen Brust fans, I just want it on the record that I could be a responsible user of Castle Black. Okay? <laughs> I just I want that in the public record. I would be a responsible yeah. user of Castle Black. You should feel fine to give that to me, and I will definitely not wreck a campaign with it. Uh, so noted. <laughs> yeah. You can take that to the bank. <laughs> yeah so i think i think that dyson logos uh advice is 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 really good right yeah and, and he included a very long list of suggestions for mm-hmm. things your character could care about but couldn't easily stab and right. it ranged from i am a connoisseur of a weird hobby all the way up mm-hmm. to you know i'm funding a kingdom whatever right and uh, it's it's great um I don't know where to tell you to track it down at this point other than his website, but it's worth, worth looking for. Um, and, and so that's, that's actually, and so that's actually kind of it for game economics in official release fifth. There's a lot of third party content that touches on this, um, and it's also worth saying that in a setting like Eberron, um, mm-hmm. you're going to be facing a lot more um, bureaucracy and sure. just costs for travel as a normal part of life. And right. so like, you have to pay a train fare to go to the adventure. Well, fair enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're going to be getting nickel, nickel and dimed all throughout the campaign and that's just that's just part of the game you're also going to be buying magical services um, because right. it's Eberron and people sell them and mm-hmm. 
you know, maybe it is better to spend 200 gold pieces here or there than spend your own spell slot. Um, or maybe you don't have a spell slot, don't have that spell yet. Um, right. That that's yep. very written into Eberron. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very different setting because of it. It runs very differently. Um, there also have been um, some significant fan efforts and uh, third-party publisher efforts to um, adapt Birthright into 5th edition. We talked about Birthright mm-hmm. back in the second mm-hmm. episode. Yep. But um, a, a colossal amount of money is great for a kingdom because it's extra gold bars. Go nuts. Right. Yep. In in my game in particular, the, the players, uh, the PCs, have a ship because it's a water-based campaign. So right. Uh, they have a ship, so they have to pay their crew. They can't not pay their crew. And yep. In fact, that's a point of uh, contention right now because they don't, they haven't gotten a lot of gold. They found items, they found magical items, they found different things. But in terms of pure just value coinage, they don't have any. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do they pay their crew? Right? It's it's uh, it, it's it it becomes a it becomes something that uh, requires attention. Right, um, and in my campaign, the PCs all belong to a mercenary company. Uh, there are additional NPCs who are being paid by this mercenary company, mm-hmm. and so the a lot of the adventures have as a core motivation: we need to go make money for the mercenary company so they can keep the lights on. Right. Um, right. Like the PCs go into the adventure knowing that the mercenary company is going to take a 25% cut of whatever they profit from the adventure. Right. Um, and that's just that's something that the players know from their first session. That, mm-hmm. that, that's just campaign premise. Um, but it does mean that I can hand out big treasures and the players still need, well, all the players still need money. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Um, but I do also occasionally like to see some magic item shops with very limited selection. Um, mm-hmm. A magic item shop with, you know, a, a full selection list that's between five and ten items long, so the PC can buy the thing, but they don't get to just go decide what the shop has. Right. Right. The shop right. has what it has. If you want the thing, yeah. then buy it. That's great. Um, right. That to me is pretty reasonable and fair. Um, All right. Well, I think uh, I think we might be done. Uh, yep. Yep. I think that pretty much wraps us for uh, game economics. Um, and I mean, I guess there are conversations we could have about how each individual setting tries to engage with the economy. Um, Birthright and and Eberron uh, are, are, are sort of always going to be standouts there. Yeah. Um, that and 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 Dark Sun, right? Dark Sun integrates metal. economy by not giving you any money or metal, right. and yeah. you're always going to be desperate, and that's life. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And Dragonlance has different coinage, right? They have steel mm-hmm. coins. Um, uh, but I, I think that would actually be better um, better talked about in if we decided to do campaign setting specific right and i think that 
it's pretty inevitable that someday we'll be having that conversation. Sure. I think so too. Okay. Well, excellent. For the listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed our foray, our, our four episode arc foray into economies in your D&D game. Uh, Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? I write for tribality.com and I my own blog is brandisstoddard.com. I also have a Patreon that is Brandis Stoddard. You can also find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. Excellent. And I am Sam Dillon, and you can find me on the web at rpgmusings.com, and you can also find me on Twitter at DM Samuel. If you would like to send us uh, comments, questions, suggestions, or requests in terms of topics, you can send that email to dndbrief at gmail.com, and we would be happy to answer any questions or take your topic suggestions. Also, if you can find the canonical reference that explains where it's pronounced Sigil, uh, you should send that to Sam. Uh, you should also add him on Twitter with it. Uh, it would be very good. Thank you. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, on that note, I will say goodbye. <laughs> good night, everyone.